LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. Welcome to EST. If you love the established church, this is the place to have conversations about why the established church matters, how to better serve her, and to hear stories every week about how God is using the church for his glory and our good. The show is hosted each week by Sam Rayner, Josh King, and Micah Fries. We're glad you're here. Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of EST. Very excited to be in uh, the studio with my friend Sam Rayner. This is Micah Fries, and we are so glad that you've joined us as we spend another week talking about issues related to the established church. And remember, the thing that makes this podcast unique is it's talking about established church issues by established church leaders. We're not uh, theoretical in nature. We're practicing this, living this out, and uh, sometimes getting beat up and sometimes celebrating the uh, s- the victories along with you guys. And so, Sam, how are you, man? I have a lot of snot. I have a head cold. That, that is uh, incredible. <laughs> well, we said we celebrate the victories and we, uh, and we suffer through the difficulties, and so you're suffering through the difficulties this week. Yeah, I mean, to, to the listeners, um, you don't care. I understand that, that I have a head cold, because some of you may have one too, but you ask. I, every, I everything ask. else in my life's pretty good, but I do That's have a good, head cold. Man. I mean, you live in South Central, what, what do, you, do you call it South Florida or Central Florida? We're Southwest. Southwest. See, it, yeah, people get confused. South, South Florida's Miami. When you say so right, exactly. South Florida, I mean, it's, it's so far from you, and it's but, a long way from you. But South, see, I'm on the other side, on, right. and then... Basically, from Bradenton to Naples is Southwest Florida, and sometimes people count Pinellas and Hillsborough County as Southwest. But really, it's uh, anything south of Tampa Bay on the yeah. West Coast is Southwest, southwest. Florida. And it, uh, geographically, it does look a little more central. But the thing is, is when you get about to the last third of Florida, right. it's just swamp. Nobody lives there. So that's right. Yeah. That's so true. when you Except look at the, for the state, strip for Miami. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you look at the state, it it doesn't quite look southwest, but you know, in terms of population center, we're we're definitely southwest. Yeah, that makes sense, man. Did you guys have a good week uh, weekend yesterday in worship? Man, we we had this amazing story um, where there's this a uh, long haul truck driver contacted the church, never been in church, just felt I guess it was the Holy Spirit say go call a church. He called a bunch of churches, nobody responded to him. We're the only church that did. And so I reached out to him, shared the gospel, um, accepted Christ. Um, we baptized him. So on this Sunday, we're recording this on Monday, so yesterday, um, he, we baptized him. He then experienced his first ever church worship service, and at the end of the service, we did the Lord's Supper. So he, had his, so he took wow. the Lord's Supper. So, That's incredible. I mean, the guy is completely new to everything, and yet That's got to partake in... Uh, both baptism and the Lord's Supper on the same day and got to experience his first worship service. Got him connected to a group. You know, it looks like he's going to be assimilated into the church. I mean, time will tell, obviously, but sure. I'm really proud of our church for stepping up and saying, hey, come on in. It was, it's just a neat, yeah. one of those neat things that happen, uh, you know, that when you're in ministry, such a blessing. You know, th- those are the encouraging things. Yeah, that's really encouraging, man. You should be encouraged by that. That's awesome. And I bet your people are celebrating as well. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we didn't mention this, but Josh is not here. He got lost to the central Arkansas wilderness, evidently, and is who? not. A, is not a, Josh, Josh, yeah, exactly. Josh. The king. 
the king. He he's not available king. this week. He is the king. That's right. Yeah, what is he doing? Right. I don't even remember what he's doing. I just remember he couldn't be on the podcast with us. We're clearly good friends. <laughs> he goes to second. Conway We're keeping up with him. All of a sudden, he's big time in us, man. Too That's important right. for the podcast. He's, he's big time in us, but anyway. <laughs> so let's talk about what we're going to talk about this week, Sam. We're going to talk about uh, the idea of leading churches in post-Christian America. And you and I, we in particular lead churches in the post-Christian South. And uh, we probably are going to need to frame for everybody what we mean by post-Christian. And then let's talk about the unique challenges uh, that exist when we're serving churches in a post-Christian context. So, Sam, why don't you frame for us, and I'm glad to do it as well, but frame for us what we mean when we say a post-Christian context. Yeah, post-Christian would be where the culture is no longer bending towards Christianity. Yeah. Um, it's where, you know, the the uh, appearances of culture kind of take on elements of, of Christianity. Um, you, you know, things like just normal, you know, do you go to church? And yes, I, you know, people go in once and twice a month or, or every week even, or, you know, politicians who uh, would make sure that they had membership at whatever, you know, prominent church there was in the community so that, you know, they could get elected. It's uh, businesses, you know, biz- big business owners making sure they have a presence in the church so that, you know, people there feel good about, um doing business with them. So it's, it's, I would say a lot of, it's, it's cultural Christianity is what we're talking about. And it's, you know, it's a very surfacey thing, very appearance, very much based on appearances. Um, that's, that's, that, that, that's certainly present in some communities in the United States still, but it is definitely on its way out. I know where I am, uh, we, we don't have people joining our church so that they can drum up business or get elected. That just doesn't happen anymore where we are. Yeah, I like how Ed Stetzer describes it. He says, it, basically, the church has lost its home field advantage. And I think that's probably a really helpful way to look at it, right? I mean, just things historically would tend toward a Judeo-Christian answer. When questions would pop up culturally, you know, we would default towards a Judeo-Christian answer. And That that's sounds not, very Stetzer-esque, by the way. It does sound very Stetzer-esque, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's a word. That, you look it up, it's, it's there. It's, Stetzer-esque. There, look it up in the dictionary. There's a big, huge goatee right out next to the side of it. <laughs> I used to tell I used to tell Ed when I worked for him it looked like he had swallowed a squirrel and the tail was just sort of hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> Ed, we love you. I know I know you we listen do. to every single one of these podcasts. We love you, brother. We're big Ed Stetzer fans. Actually, yeah, but I, I mean, but I am. Oh, I'm, I, I, I'm, trust I, me, I, I'm not being facetious. Ed Ed Stetzer has shaped me as much as any man in my life outside of my dad. I, uh, so I'm a big I Ed often Stetzer tell fan. people if I stop making fun of you. That's when you're. That's in exactly right. That's when. That's when you worry. I tell people the exact same thing, Sam. That's incredible. It's my love language. Pick yes. it on people. Yes. The good news is it's Ed's love language too, so he can appreciate <laughs> it, and he gives it better than he even receives it. So, but but I, I do love Ed's description. We've lost the home field advantage, and and he, so, with that said, let's talk about the challenges of serving in a post Christian context. And I'll tell you the biggest. I think the biggest challenge that I know of serving in the post-Christian context is that I have one generation that tends to be 35 to 40 and below who the only thing they know is a post-Christian context and the generation or two above that um, feels very lost and uncomfortable because the world feels very different to them than the way they grew up. And so you have these contrasting worldviews that function. If you lead a multi-generational church, it's not the same 
struggle that we've had in previous decades, intergenerational struggle. This is a rather specific and unique intergenerational struggle where they simply see the world differently because of the way in which they grew up in either a Christian or post-Christian context. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I see that divide in my church. Although I will give our older generations credit. They here, since a lot of them are from New England and the upper Midwest, um, they kind of grasp it a little more um, than, than maybe, some, maybe somebody from a small town in the deep south, um, you know, just because they've seen that, that shift. Um, right. And right. Um, I think people in New England kind of would nod their heads at all of this and say, yeah, this is something we've been experiencing for some time. But, you know, the Atlantas, the Dallas, you know, the Dallases of the world, um, they're, they're beginning to see this. This is, you know, the, what was happening 30 years ago, 40 years ago in the Pacific Northwest and the, you know, the New England area is, is now really happening all over the nation. Yeah, and, and it's true. And if I can go back to another Stetzer comment and, uh, and uh, use it as an example, I think he's right about this. He talks about what the future of America looks like. And, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, the future of America is Europe, Western Europe, where uh, it's like less than 3% Christian. You have these huge cathedrals and, and churches that are now being used as hotels and bed and breakfast and bars. And, and, and he would argue that that's not the future of American Christianity. A better picture of the future of American Christianity is the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Portland, where the church is strong and vibrant, and you have you have really good, strong Christian presence, but it's a it's a vocal minority, and the culture is not bent in any way toward the church. and And I think he's right about that. And I think the South is uncomfortably moving in that direction, and the, and the uncomfortable nature of it is where we're you know where we have a challenge in the intergenerational established church helping. Those who grew up in a different context and and they're watching this transition happen and they're very uncomfortable helping them make the transition in a way that is missiologically faithful. Thinking of this as a great opportunity rather as rather than something just to be feared. And I think right now the dominant posture is is sort of fear about what's happening with these changes in the culture. Oh yeah, there there is um, maybe maybe not fear, but certainly a, a great unease. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and you see that uh, you see the political divide um, getting more and more heated. I think this is part of it, though not um, not all of it. Certainly, um, you you see just the, even the tensions in the church um, over style, which you know the style wars. A lot of churches say that's come and gone, but uh, not my church. I mean, we don't have style wars, but yeah, we have different yeah. worship styles. <laughs> Sure, and, and, it, and it, a lot of it is is based and it's rooted in you know the way things were fifty, sixty years ago. Um, and again, I've got good people, and nobody is gonna you know you know take up arms if we did something. But sure, um, but you do see those divides um, in, in even in the church, and um, you know I think you probably got about another twenty years of this really. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Gen I mean, X will probably be the last of you know Gen X will probably be the last of that of the group that would know anything of, you know, the, the cultural trappings of Christianity, you know, built in, it built into the culture. Which is my, uh, which is my generation. I'm Gen X. I'm at the very tail end of Gen X. You're millennial. Is that right? Um, so. I am, I am like right on the line, uh, depending on how yeah. you define it, but right. I definitely identify more as a millennial. I was born in yeah. 1980. So for those who start the millennial generation in 1980, like my father, who's always right. Um, <laughs> I, we I will not disagree with the, uh, the elder Dr. Rayner. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, 1980, some people define millennials 1982, but you see, I had right. younger brothers. I didn't have older brothers. So if I'd had sure. older brothers, 
right. I might have identified more with Gen X because I would have seen yeah. it in them. But I was the oldest, so I, I tend yeah. to identify more with my younger brother's generation. I'm the oldest, but I I tend to generate tend. But I was also born in 1978. But I tend to identify in that Gen X. My brother was born in 1980, and uh, sister born in 1982. But um, I, if if I can sort of go back thinking about how this creates some sort of tension in the church, and I think this is so this is helpful to our listeners, Sam, because a lot of them have tension in their church, and they're not sure why. Right, and they think, oh, it's just they like one worship style. Another generation likes a different worship style, and there's something bigger at play here that, if we can understand it, helps us to navigate how we lead. You know, help help lead the church. Trevin Wax wrote an article oh, quite a while back, and talked about two dominant views of culture: those in the church who view the culture as sort of the American culture as sort of a new kind of Israel, God's chosen people, God's particularly blessed them. And then those who tend to view American culture as sort of Babylon. And uh, those who tend to view, he said, those who tend to view the culture as Israel want to, want to see culture sort of redeemed and reclaimed and recovered. And those who send, uh, tend to see uh, the culture viewed as Babylon want to go and see culture transformed. And they tend to be more sort of missionary in posture. That helped me when I read that think about the tensions within the church. Um, and I think that's a product of sort of Christian and then post-Christian culture. It helped me recognize there's two fundamental, dif- fundamentally different ways of viewing how the church ought to go about the task of engaging the culture around them. And those very different views are going to create tension between generations in the church that the, the pastor's got to be able to navigate in the established church. Yeah, and, you know, you, you see this even in eschatology, you know, the right. differences in eschatology. Um, right, that's right. You see this in... Um, you know, the differences in just missiological posturing um, and even even how you share your faith. Yeah. You know, pra- practical, pragmatic things like not not the not changing the gospel, obviously, but how you share the gospel. Um, you know, you've got the person who wants to pass out chick tracks. You've got right. the person who wants a completely different approach. So, right. you, you know, the, these things generationally and it is it is largely a generational divide, although it is a geographical divide as well. Sure. Um, um, you, I, I experience all of these things in the church, and and I try to I, I try to bridge these differences rather than um, enhance them as a pastor. So yeah, I'm so always th- looking for opportunities to bring this particular group in with this particular group, this generation with this generation, and and bridge rather rather than point out and continue to exacerbate the differences. I think, and I think a lot of leaders try to they pick and choose, and I don't you think you have to. That's what I want us to get to, Sam, because typically our podcast is very practical in nature, and we've been theoretical up to this point. So practically, how do you go about bringing those generations together at West Bradenton? Like, what does that look like when you're taking two different, very different worldviews, post-Christian context, um, you know, very different views of culture and engagement? How do you bring them together in, in, in one area? Yeah, the, one of the things that I do, and I'll just start with preaching, because that's a, a good part of what I do. Um, it, well, it's what I do one hour a week. How about that? Um, right. But you spend <laughs> a lot more time on it than that. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I preach three services, so, you know, it's a little more than an hour. But um, in my preaching, I, I very intentionally try to use pop culture examples, examples from the news, and then historical examples from different generations, um, particularly, you know, uh, you know, just things about history. The younger generation needs to know about what happened in the 1960s. So... And then the baby boomers, obviously, they they live that, so they can connect with it. 
um, if I want to reach, you know, the World War II generation, not many of them left, but, you know, maybe their kids, you, know, you talk about things from the 40s and 50s. So even in my preaching, I'm asking the question, um, how, how do I connect with different generations? And in my illustrations, especially, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to um, make sure that I'm not just talking to one generation. I'm not just using all pop culture examples from today. Um, and I think that's pretty, pretty much a boring approach to sermons anyway, and it's lazy. Um, but, you know, you need to bring in history into your sermons, and, and that's one way to connect. Um, the other thing that we do is just mission in general. Um, we don't really segment by age with our mission trips. Um, you know, we might have a student mission trip or something like that or a family mission trip, but by and large, you want to go on a mission trip, we just do all that together. And, and that may be local, it may be, you know, somewhere else in the United States, maybe international. Um, but we try to bring people together on mission as much as we can, and, and that bridges a lot of divides too because when you're, you know, when you got a 16-year-old working next to a 76-year-old, you know, out on the mission field, a lot of those generational divides just come down they actually get to know each other. That's what I wanted to get at because I, in, in my experience, just trying to find relational capacity, relational space is one of the single best things you can do to bridge generational and you know, sort of cultural divide in the church. Um, I, here's an example that I can think of. Like my, my grandfather, my, my papa, who um, is no longer with us, he, he passed away uh, a few years ago. But I remember, you know, hearing stories of him uh, when he was a young military guy and he was, he, he had some people under him and he had a, a young guy walk into his office one day and had an earring in his ear and my grandfather never said a word. He just literally ripped it out of the guy's ear, threw it in the trash can. And that was my, my papa, big, huge, larger than life guy from Texas. He was John Wayne in my world. I and, love and then, John Wayne. I like your papa. <laughs> I, I love my papa. Well, I, I've got a cousin who is is amazing, uh, but but had multiple earrings and and you know and and tattoos, and would walk in the house, and I would watch my papa's response to him. Like he would be sitting in his chair, and my cousin would walk in, and my papa would immediately jump out of his chair and like envelop in a in a big hug, right, and love on him. And and I, where was the the disconnect between the way he responded in one context versus the way he responded in another context? I, I remember my grandfather telling a pastor one time that if he showed up for church on a Wednesday night without a tie, he'd make sure he was you know he was fired before the next week. <laughs> he was really he loved <laughs> traditional sort of his his traditional worship environment was very important. Well, where was the disconnect? And the the answer the key is relationship, right? Like he had a relationship there that allowed some of those things that may be ancillary but would really have bothered him in the past to not be an issue. Why? Because he had relationship, and there was a great deal of affection and love, and he realized those things just don't matter as much to me anymore. Yeah, and there, uh, Sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say there's something else going on, and you're the one telling the story, so forgive me. And it's your papa, not mine. No, it's good. <laughs> but but the, the, what you've just described is also um, something that we see as a divide, which is institutionalism. So, yes. you know, you're in the church. Right. So, you know, the, the older generations think in terms of institutions. And, and there's a lot of good there. So I, I'm, I'm not dogging this at all. Right. You know, they give to institutions. You go to a church. That campus has a sacredness to it. It is God's house. Right, right. And, yes. and, you know, it's one thing if you're at a ball game wearing a ball cap or an earring. It's right. another thing if you walk into the institution that sure. is the church or the institution right. that is the school or the institution that is whatever. Um, and, and I like a lot. There's a lot to the younger generation can learn a lot from 
the institutionalism of the older generation. And there's some things there that we could rightly critique, too, in terms of, you know, thinking too much in terms of, of the institution. But, sure. um, but loyalty to a place, loyalty to um, an institution is something that you just don't see in the younger generation. Uh, good, bad, or ugly, that's just true. It's rare to find a millennial that is institutionally loyal. Uh, but it sounds like that's a, that's part of what was going on with your papa too. Is like, well, why, how dare you wear an earring, you know, into an institution that I respect? Right, um, right. So, or, or tie for that matter. You know, right. and that's or that's a where a lot of, of it tie. comes from. Right. Yeah, it, it 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 comes from that idea that we are institutionally loyal, and there's something special about this institution. Um, yeah, and, and I, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of like about that in the older generation. There is, but but even the institutional concerns. How do you bridge that gap? And I'm telling you, the number one most important thing is the development of relationships. Just love Agreed. each other, because Agreed. that's when we listen. You know, that's when we listen to each other. That's when we hear from each other. That's when we love each other, right? That's and that's when we allow for accommodations with respect to each other. And you know, this started as a conversation about post-Christian context. How do we serve in this environment? And and. I think one of the, the struggles are the post-Christian context is creating these radically disparate worldviews in our church. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we live in a culture that sort of highlights differences and doesn't mind using pejorative language toward those who are different than us. And even in the church, we're doing the same thing. And one of the ways we break down that wall is we're just friends with each other. And we allow for each other. And we could go, there's, there's a whole lot more we need to say about post-Christian context. This is really just step one, getting the, the very different worldviews in our church to function well together with each other. But I do, I think that's step one. How do we create avenues, spaces, and opportunities for our people not to just sit in the pews together, but rather to know each other? I, I, I heard this illustration a few years ago, and I think it's really, really helpful, that the average church is far more like an airplane ride than it is a community. And the argument is this. When we ride on an airplane, we show up at the airport at approximately the same time. We sit in the same basic you know, space around the boarding door. We listen to the same announcements. We board at about the same time. We sit side by side in proximity with one another, facing the same direction, listening to the same directions. We land at the same time, and we disembark at basically the same time. But if, if most people I don't people's know, man. I got some people in my church jumping off the plane a little early. <laughs> well, but my point is, is you know, if you do all of this— um, in most cases, the person who sits beside you is throwing on a pair of headphones, right, a, some Apple AirPods, and they're laying their seat back, and they're either watching a movie or they're closing their eyes and listening to music, and there's no conversation or relationship happening, right? They're in proximity, but they're not in relationship. So many of our churches are like airplanes. Our people walk in, hear the directions, sit at the same space, and leave, but they're in proximity while not being in relationship with one another. So the question is, how do we foster the existence of relationships where they can begin to know and love each other? Man, that's brilliant. I don't know who came up with that. I don't know either who came up with it, but I've been using it for a while. It's I'm, a I'm very totally, apt description. I'm totally stealing it. It's, yeah. all, it's all mine now. <laughs> I stole it from someone else. I don't claim it. It's not mine, but I'm using it from someone else. I just don't hey, know who to give credit listen, to. Listen, you know the, the, you know the preacher rule. If you, you, if you legitimately do not know the source, then you are allowed to claim it as your own. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. That's, that's it. how that's so, how we all end go, up with man. all these same illustrations that you know you go to one church and like wait a minute I've heard so true story true story uh, when I was in college we used to have chapel I went to a little Bible college in North Florida and we had chapel three days a week and um, <laughs> I still remember the, the the third day of the of chapel one week my best friend's dad was preaching 
Well, the, the two preachers before him that week used the exact same illustration to close their sermon. And then my best friend's dad came in and nobody thought to tell him that they had already used that same illustration. And he closed his sermon with the exact same illustration, three sermons in a row using the, you remember the illustration about keeping your fork? Because the best is yet to come. Mama used to, when she'd serve dinner, you know, she'd take up the plates and she'd say, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. Talking about dessert still coming. And uh, one guy wanted to be buried in his casket with a fork as a reminder, the best is yet to come. All three, I still, I mean, this was like almost 20 years ago. And I still remember all three preachers using the exact same illustration as their own. So be cautious when you're using those illustrations. (laughs) That's funny. Amazing, isn't it? Let's talk briefly before we, before we land the plane. Yeah. Um, about what this means for our churches yeah. in yeah. this post-Christian context. And, and you know, even, you know, for those of our listeners in the South, I mean, if it hasn't come your way, it is coming. You know, you're, we're it seeing... Is. Yeah, it, right. It's probably a 20-year sort of change. You know, I don't think that, you know, next year everything's going to change in the Deep South, but, you know, over a generation or two, this, this is certainly going to happen. So if you're a younger it listener is. in the Deep South, these, th- this should be something that you're paying attention to. Um, and I'll just I'll go ahead and start. I think one thing that you one thing that I've noticed in Southwest Florida, and I, I, I mentioned this yesterday talking to one of my mentors. I was just like, you can't grow a church on your preaching anymore. I mean, it, it's hard to do that down here. Yeah. Um, you know, you you used to hear people say, well, you know, if you have a solid preacher, your church will grow. If you That's can right. communicate well, your church will grow. And yeah. one thing that I've noticed, and people en- people enjoy a good communicator, don't get me wrong, if you're a poor communicator, you're sure. probably not going to go either. But right, So you need right. to be a good communicator, but you can't rely solely on preaching on ability that. anymore. That's right. That's you, right. Just, you just can't. I mean, 20, 30, 50 years ago, you could, yeah, but you, right. you can't anymore. You're not going to have droves of people showing up to hear your sermons. I'm sorry. It's just yeah, and if, if, if I can piggyback off of that, Sam, one of the realities, and I live in... Chattanooga, Tennessee, which according to DeBarna Research is the most churched city in North America, which I think makes it the most churched city in the world, which means I think, I know lots of people say they live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I'm pretty sure I can make the strongest claim that I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. So with that said, I've found that as a pastor, I'll say things like, well, you know, you know the story of Jonah, or I'll say, well, you guys know the story of Noah, you know, and then I'll just sort of assume that they do and move on. And what I found is a strong amount of our church doesn't know the story of Jonah. They don't know the story of Moses. They don't know who David is. When I tell them to turn to the gospel of Luke, they don't know where that's at. And, and post-Christian context means that there's a whole lot of people coming into our churches who don't have familiarity with the gospel, the Bible, and assumptions that those of us have made uh, who, who are, you know, I'm going to be 40 years old. From the time of recording this, I am under two weeks to my 40th birthday, Sam. And uh, it's coming rapidly. I found out this week I have arthritis in my back, so I'm feeling very old all of a sudden. Man, but those that, of us from here, from here on out, you will be named Old Man Micah. Arthritic Micah, yes. My Arthritic daughter, Micah. <laughs> my daughter gets her driver's permit in less than a month. I'm wow. telling you, man, stomach wow. is grinding right now. But those of us who are my age or older are accustomed to preaching while assuming a certain level of knowledge about the Bible or the gospel, and it just doesn't exist anymore. And so we're going to have to be increasingly sim- simple in our language and clear going back and explaining things that in the past we might have been able to assume. Yeah, you know, uh, I I try to I try to explain things in my sermon as well, 
Um, and it is, it's difficult um, because I do know, like the, the guy that we baptized yesterday, he literally has never been in a church service. Now, he's been reading his Bible, by the way, which is sure, fascinating. Sure, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, he started there. He started by reading the Word of God and and then, you know, reached out to a church. And, you know, and his biblical knowledge is actually better than what I thought it would be um, because of some of the things that he told me, um, particularly around baptism and the proper mode of baptism. I, I won't get into that for mm-hmm. the sake of listeners who are not Baptist, but um, <laughs> I said, now, now we're going to dunk you, just so you know. I mean, because I didn't know. I, I know he's got no background. He goes, well, that's what the Bible says. Uh, I was like, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to the sprinklers that are yes, out there. Yes, but, but it was really kind of funny that uh, that, that came awesome. up. So, I mean, he's reading God's Word and he's learning. But when it comes to, like, the little plastic sippy cups with grape juice in them, that's a little ba- – that's a Baptist joke there. That's um, right. And, that's you right. Know, and we used those at my, uh, at my church yesterday. And the bits and pieces of gluten-free crackers. Um, yes. Cr- well, they're they're actually Little not bread, bread. pieces or whatever they are. They're they're not bread. It's not bread. It's soybean. But don't tell my church my church that. Yeah, and um, they feel like they taste like uh, like styrofoam is what they taste like. Yeah. My, mine yeah. do anyway. They taste like rubbery styrofoam. So I explain Lord's Supper every time I do it. I explain yep. every single time. Yeah. And and I think that you're going to have to do more explanation. In, in the service of this is what this is. This is why this is important. This is why we do this. I think you're right, Mike. Absolutely. Well, man, that's about all of our time. The truth is this is a topic that needs more discussion. We're going to have to tackle it in a future um, episode, maybe even evangelism in a post-Christian context and, and so much more that Ooh, we need to I talk like that about. One. I think that's important. We're going to have to get into that one. We're really glad we you guys— an episode on evangelism. I, I think like that's that. an important one. I think that I think that would be really, really good. You talked about it, the Chick Track method versus sort of new and sort of— newer methods that we've got to sort of tackle that are existing in our church, what's effective, what's not. I think that's a good idea. We'll tackle that in the future. Really glad that you joined us to listen today. I hope that you will continue to go online, engage with us on social media, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter. And if you could, if you would do us a huge favor, and that is um, uh, jump on to iTunes and rate and review us, as well as we're really, really glad to be a part of the LifeWay Leadership uh, Podcast Network. And uh, we're thankful for other podcasts that are joining together with us as a part of this network uh, to help you connect with new podcasts that maybe you haven't heard uh, about before and help our podcast get connected with listeners who have not heard of us before as well. And so we want to encourage you to go check out the LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network wherever you pick up your podcast. Until next time, we hope that you continue loving and serving the established church. Hey, this is Josh. Thanks for listening to another episode of EST. My co-host, Micah, and Sam and I would like to suggest to you Making Disciples podcast. Co-hosts Robbie Gallaty and Chris Swain will help you make Jesus' final words your first work. In each episode, you will hear discussions about discipleship and disciple-making in the local church. So, if you are a pastor or a leader, in every single episode, you will hear insight and various elements of discipleship and tips to implement in your own context. You can find out more information about Making Disciples with Robbie Gallaty at leadership.lifeway.com. You can also check out all of the other amazing uh, leadership podcasts that are available there, including Five Leadership Questions, Ask Me Anything with J.D. Greer, and The One Thing. So check that out again at leadership.lifeway.com. You've been listening to EST, a discussion for the established church. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. EST is proud to be a part of the LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network.